Welcome to the In Conversation series with Housing Options Scotland and the UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence with your hosts Pedro Cameron and Dr Gareth Young. This series explores equality, diversity and inclusion in housing research and practice through sharing stories and experiences from people working across the housing sector. In this conversation, we're joined by Kelly Henderson, founder and CEO of Addressing Domestic Abuse, a community interest company providing bespoke support to social housing providers and associated supply chains to identify and respond to domestic abuse. Today we talk about the work that Kelly has done with victims and survivors of domestic abuse, the ways in which organisations need to work holistically to provide positive outcomes and the way in which all policy practice and research needs to be people-centred, ensuring that the voices of survivors are recognised in all the work that is done to tackle domestic abuse. Please know that you may find some of this discussion upsetting. So I'm Kelly Henderson, Managing Director of Addressing Domestic Abuse. We are a community interest company. Um, and I suppose our aim is to really end domestic abuse at the end of the day. Um, we don't want to exist, ideally. Um, but what we do is, is kind of work with um, largely with housing providers and other um, public bodies to as the name suggests, address domestic abuse to support organisations, um, you know, to look at how they can address domestic abuse most effectively. So do quite a lot of training um, across um, London boroughs, across uh, West Midlands has been doing quite a lot of work there and responding to homeless and housing option teams and, um, you know, responding to the social housing white paper and um, the Domestic Abuse Act and really um, supporting teams to, um, you know, Get up to speed with with the requirements of um, the the act and the social housing white paper and kind of you know that expectation um, placed on local authorities and housing providers. Do quite a lot of training for um, uh, repairs or property companies as well. Um, I worked um, for a year with. Um, Morgan Siddle Property Services, and that was to make sure that all of their staff, you know, plumbers, joiners, et cetera, going into properties, um, knew a little bit about domestic abuse. So when they were in there, you know, mending a tap or, or whatever, um, and, you know, they're the eyes and ears in that home, they can kind of spot some signs potentially of domestic abuse, certainly not expecting them to be social workers, but just, you know, while you're in that home, if you do spot something, setting up referral um, pathways, um, so I would say that's been um, quite a lot of um, addressing domestic abuse work over the past year. We've just had our one year anniversary. So I would say that that's kind of um, largely what we've been doing and also um, carry out, carrying out research into the effectiveness of a perpetrator programme is, is one example of what we do. And started a piece of work on um, looking at, you know, um, homelessness and domestic abuse and and how legislation has changed over the years, but actually as a victim survivor of domestic abuse, presenting as homeless, what's changed in, in that. Um, so we've just started off that piece of work and really keen to work with other people to kind of gather lots of information so we can um, make sure that the voices of survivors are heard. Um, so be really good to talk to you about that in much more detail. Great. That's great. Thank you, Kelly. So, yeah, part of what we're, what we're aiming to do with this In Conversation series is exactly this, is to open up these discussions about sort of the way that certain groups of people are possibly excluded from housing in the UK and some of the challenges and barriers and, and, and on the flip of that, again, the work that, that's been done to support these people. So, you know, 
broad question, but just just in your view at the moment, from your perspective, what would you say some of the main sort of contemporary issues are um, at the moment? Do, um, in relation to homelessness and domestic abuse, or yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just before I go off on a tangent, um, <laughs> so yeah, would... anything's welcome to be honest on this question. Excellent. I would say that um, I've just mentioned the you know the research that I've um, just started on, um, and you know we're just at the you know the very early stages, and I would say that um, some of the some of the experiences. Um, of domestic of presenting as homeless as a result of domestic abuse so um i would say that that's still the key issue so we've seen changes in in legislation changes in policy much more awareness of domestic abuse we've looked at the stigma around domestic abuse we saw the recent um social housing stigma um paper led by um, Mercy Denido, who's actually one and her um, colleague, um, who's actually one of our advisory board members. So just kind of looking at the stigma and you would think that in this day and age, we would be getting somewhere close to um, making sure that anybody who is homeless as a result of domestic abuse didn't feel that stigma, didn't feel that kind of that sense of um, blame or in, in some cases, or, you know, that that they won't be helped or they're really scared about how much of their story they should tell. So um, just to, to put this into context, about 30 years ago, as an undergrad, um, we had to do um, a placement. So my placement was in a women's refuge in the northeast. And part of my duties there was to um, work, was to support women to present as homeless um, as a result of domestic abuse at the local authority. And I just remember, you know, 30 years ago, kind of, uh, we'd, we'd walk to the local authority, we would, um, you know, say, actually, um, we're, we're here to present as homeless, um, you know, um, as a result of domestic abuse. Um, and so, and I think this is why I want to do this piece of research. So, as I say, we've had the Domestic Abuse Act, we've seen numerous um, pieces of homeless legislation. Um, and when I spoke to women last year for this research, um, some of the things that they talked about were exactly the even using the same words um, that I'd heard 30 years ago. Mm. Um, I don't know how much of my story to tell. I, I don't think I'll be believed. Um, and just, you know, I was felt like I wasn't a person. I was felt I was just a problem. Um, so I, I would think that while we've seen this change in legislation, with society has changed to some extent in that 30 years. But if you're a victim survivor of domestic abuse presenting as homeless, you still feel largely the same way that a victim survivor of, ho of homelessness as a you know result of domestic abuse felt 30 years ago. So I, I think there's a big piece of work to be done there around um, the impact of policy and legislative changes, but actually what does that mean on the ground? And I know that um, as an example, um, Glenn Bramley's just um, in inside housing, I think today I noticed on LinkedIn, and his particular research um, was talking about um, you know race and um, homelessness as well. So, you, and I remember being being a sixteen year old sociology student, kind of talking about that. So obviously more than thirty years ago, clearly. Um, and and I just and I, when I read that piece in Inside Housing today about um, race and homelessness being uh, you know a massive issue still. Um, I think that we, what have we achieved in all of this time? Um, so I think this, you know, the the issues about race, the issues around uh, migrant women fleeing domestic abuse, yeah. um, and having no recourse to public funds. I think there's there's so many things other than just being homeless as a result of domestic abuse. If you intersect that with um, 
you know, if you were homeless as a result of domestic abuse and a migrant woman, if you were a black woman um, fleeing domestic abuse. And I think um, I think looking at one of the headlines of, of um, Glenn Bramley's research said that um, you were 50% more likely to be homeless as a result. Um, I might have got that wrong, but um, there was a big quote in it and it'd be useful to kind of um, to include that quote in this conversation. So I think there's, I think some of the big issues that we thought we'd fixed or we thought we were on top of, um, I don't think we really have. I think we've been quite good at masking things and, and having, oh, well, we've got this legislation. Oh, we've got this, we've got that. And in terms of domestic abuse, I still think, you know, it's it's a massive problem that we're not on top of in any way, shape or form. And um, uh, and I don't know from your perspective in terms of, you know, looking at um, uh, people with disabilities as an example, if that's something that you see that you would ex expect that, in 30 years as an example that things would have changed and I, I feel that those changes are just very surface um they look quite glossy but actually for survivors of domestic abuse imagine and just thinking about if you were a, a woman with disabilities um you know again um further problems to be faced there so i, I do think um the issues that we talked about 30 years ago 40 years ago uh, still very much um, the issues that we see today, definitely. Um, yeah, that's sorry. come through. No, no, not at all, but that has definitely come through in conversations that we've had with, with others, I'd say. So it's, it's definitely not a unique challenge, but it's one that is really frustrating, really, you know, that yeah. we're here, isn't it? But i think um i think, sorry, uh, I think that, yeah, something that's come up a lot is that again you know you mentioned in terms of disability for example yeah. um i think a big problem is that there's a lot to cover so when we talk about person-centered services mm -hmm. um that requires the person delivering the service to know an awful lot or to understand an awful lot yeah. about a huge range of issues mm -hmm. um and yeah. and so understanding what to do in the case of domestic abuse mm -hmm. understanding what to do in the case of disabilities understanding mm -hmm. what to do in the case of race issues cultural issues yeah. sexuality issues things like that is like is like a huge um yeah. thing for people to need to know and so it sort of yeah. highlights the kind of the mm -hmm. need for um joined up working i suppose in the sense of that because it's impossible yeah. for everyone to know yeah, we can't um, all know everything. everything. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And, and I think that feeds into, you know, the whole idea about being a housing professional um, and it and having pride in being a housing professional isn't just about, you know, you being, um, you're great at meeting your targets around kind of rent collection. It's about the service that you provide and understanding your community. So I was really glad to see that the Chartered Institute of Housing had kind of started off that whole conversation um, and seeing housing as a profession um, in the same way, well, obviously not the same way, but in a on the same um, stance, really, as you know, if you're a social worker, if you're um, a teacher, it's, it's kind of a profession, and we need to invest in that, as you said, we need to invest in that kind of that understanding, um, you know, the communities that that we we do serve, and and I think yes, not everybody can be an expert in everything, but we need to have that certain level of understanding of um, understanding and have an empathy and um and wanting to learn about um different 
experiences that um, tenants or, or people presenting as homeless might face. So I think um, I think that's crucial. Um, and it's not it's not just about bricks and mortar. It's about people and people's lives. And that's the most crucial thing that a housing professional needs to understand. Get off my soapbox there a minute there. <laughs> no, I, I think we both uh, agree with that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. No, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, just as I know you've you've probably covered a lot of this, but just a slight other question. So it's around kind of particular issues that your work's highlighted over the years. Now I know that you you know addressing domestic abuse is now one years old, but you've you've been mm. kind of working previously. But I was just uh, also in the context of what's happened over the last few years with the pandemic and the lockdowns and all that that brought I was just wondering if there was any sort of thoughts or insights that, that you'd kind of um yeah highlighted from from the last couple of years particularly. Yeah I would say from my point of view um I would say that obviously the lockdown has um you know been horrific for everybody and I think as a victim survivor of domestic abuse it just um it was even more difficult because you know the, the government are kind of worse kind of saying you know you um you you know you've you've got to be um locked down you've got to do this and blah 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 so you can imagine as a victim survivor of domestic abuse um already facing maybe the worry and the stigma of presenting as homeless as an example and wondering where on earth you will end up um, and I think being trapped with the abuser and, you know, people working from home, which whereas before you might have had an, an avenue of escape to have eight hours a day where obviously the abuser would still be monitoring you and, you know, doubt getting texts or phone calls, etc. But it just gave you that avenue. So I think that whole working from home for many people was was great. But if you imagine as a victim survivor of domestic abuse, then that presented a whole issue Um of, of problems and at the time um i was actually on secondment from housing and working for northumbria police um and i remember at the time one of the key issues that that the police were facing was if they served a domestic violence protection notice or order um that would be to remove the um suspected perpetrator from the property and at the time um you know there was nowhere for the perpetrators to go um, so just little things like that, I think, were, you know, causing massive problems. So at the time, I was able to work with um, the six um, local authority areas across Northumbria Police and um, reach an agreement with them to, to treat anybody who was a suspected perpetrator of domestic abuse um, as a you know, as part of the rough sleeping guidelines so that they could actually house that person in hotel, in hotel accommodation, which meant that the victim wasn't, you know, feeling under pressure to go, oh, well, yeah, they can come back in, in two days or, um, you know, putting pressure on that, maybe that person's friends or family to to house them um, while the order or the, the notice was in place. So I think, um, I think it just presented so many... Um, difficulties as a victim survivor of domestic abuse um and obviously you know we are coming out of the pandemic now in terms of not being in lockdown uh, and and i think i know that i've read somewhere that um in the counting dead women for 2020 the census the femicide census that they did i think they showed that there'd actually been a drop in in that year um, and you would first of all think, oh, that sounds kind of um, really good. There's been a drop in femicide for that year. But I think what the authors there said, um, Karen and Gala Smith um, was one of the, was the key author. Um, I think what one of the things that they talked about was actually as a victim survivor of domestic abuse, your avenues of escape aren't there. And as a as a perpetrator, when you're losing that control, that'll be more likely when you are going to 
um, you know, kill kill the person with that person's left. So the fact that people couldn't leave and were trapped in that home. So um, it's really interesting. The whole obviously survey is really interesting to have a look at and just you know where where women were killed, who they were killed by, and and all of that. And then for 2020 is obviously you know um, peak lockdown, I suppose as well. So I think um, I thought that they made a really um, relevant point that we saw a drop in in the number of women being killed in lockdown um, because they didn't have the um, abilities to or the, you know the avenues to to leave that abusive situation therefore the perpetrator hadn't lost that um control of that person mm. so i thought that was quite an interesting thing um to to read about personally yeah yeah definitely yeah. thank you for sharing um so on that sort of uh on a different note could yeah. you talk about any good work that you're aware of that local yeah. authorities and housing associations are doing um, to support women and uh, and victims and survivors of uh, domestic abuse into housing? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I know that, um, as I say, I do quite a lot of training for different local authorities and different housing providers. And I do think that some have really, um, you know, really got better and, and done some great things. Um, and I just I think back to the times when um, Scottish Women Aid um, did a piece of research in Fife and some of the you know the the results there were really depressing about kind of the um, the attitudes of um, of staff there. Um, mm. But I think um, since then I've I've kind of talked to lots of different housing providers and I've seen that people now have um, independent domestic violence advocates as part of the team. So people who are from the domestic abuse sector. Um, you know, being part of the team. And I think just goes back to your earlier point about, you know, we can't all be an expert in everything. But um, I think there was one particular London borough that I was um, um, doing training with, and they talked about um, their ITVA being really crucial to to provide an, um, them with learning and an understanding of domestic abuse. And it also meant that somebody who was coming forward as a, a victim survivor of domestic abuse knew that they were they were speaking to an IDFA um, and that IDFA was able to support them and refer them to the right services, but also um, look at, you know, the best um, housing outcomes for that person as well. So I think that mixture of um, having different... Um, different skills and different backgrounds I think is really important that kind of um co-location um somebody whose job isn't isn't necessarily homelessness but their understanding or they've always worked in domestic abuse being placed within a housing option option team I think um was one of the you know the really good things and what I found as well was when I was delivering the training everybody talked about the impact of this person and how central they were to the team so I think we can't all be experts, we've said that, but yeah. to have an expert in the team yes. where every day you're going to be learning from that expert and, you know, just by that drip, drip effect of things that they will say, things that they will do. And knowing that you, you know, you're not just, um, you're trying to do your best and you're thinking, oh, I, I don't know what to do, but you've got somebody with expertise to call upon. So yeah. I would say that that's something that I found really positive. I remember before lockdown, I think it was in Hull um, and, I was uh, visiting Hull and I was looking at, I was speaking to their homeless team and they again had an IDFA, independent domestic violence advocate as part of the team. And I remember that people used to say that um, they would 
send somebody along to present as homeless and they would they wouldn't have to go with a massive queue behind them oh hi i'm fleeing domestic abuse and um i'd like to present as homeless while you know the perpetrator's family might be in the queue behind them and telling your life story with a you know crowded wait room it would just be oh i've been sent here for and then they used a code name for you know it might be something like um a bluebell interview or a you know um daffodil or something like that these yeah. to call them um and it meant that that person would be just it would just be right take a seat and where the idfil would come straight down and get that person and take them into a room away from the waiting room and everything so i think there's lots of things where um as i say going back to my days of um supporting women to present as homeless 30 years ago where quite often that woman would have to be um telling part of her story to a crowded waiting room who were, you know, in earshot. So I think there's some mm -hmm. things like that. I think that that shared learning, um, that ability to, to, if you are a housing options officer, to say, I don't know about this, but I, I want to know. And, um, yeah. and you know, just reach out for that help as well. <laughs> there's lots of good work that I have seen and really positive. It's so easy to look at kind of the things that go wrong, but I think... There's those people who are really pushing for pushing for change and pushing to make a difference and and thinking outside of the box. Um, so I think there's probably billions of examples. Yeah. Um, I think you probably you brought up a few good examples and good ideas around this, but um, do you think that enough support is given to workforces within um, housing providers, particularly? to ensure inclusion and awareness around these issues. And I guess if not, what would be your ideas of like how to deal with that? Yeah, I would say, um, obviously, as I mentioned, the pockets of good practice, but um, I think there's a lot more that we can do. Um, and I was working as a researcher at Durham University researching male victims of domestic abuse in COVID, reaching out for help. And I did notice them, um, I can share the report as well after after this, um, but I did notice that some of the, we listened into phone calls from men who'd experienced domestic abuse ringing a helpline and we had their permission to listen into the call. And some of the key things that the men brought up were um, housing issues and feeling scared about presenting as homeless because they wouldn't be believed um, or that they should be able to cope with this or men sleeping in cars or men sleeping rough because they felt... Um, they should, you know, this should not be happening to them. They should not be homeless. So who's going to believe me if I go to the council and say, um, you know, I've, I've got to get out of this situation. So um, I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of, say, uh, male victims of domestic abuse, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and various people that I've spoken to have have um, some cases where people have said, actually, I had a man who came in and he was talking about um, lots of other things about why he was homeless. Um, you know, relationship breakdown. But actually, once we got down to it, and once I'd spoken to him a few times, it was actually he was a victim of domestic abuse. So I think there's um, there's a lot more that we can do, definitely. And I think that you know, having the IDFA side of things, I think that that makes yeah. a, a big difference. Um, but I think also just um, working in partnership with domestic abuse and specialist agencies, making sure that you know we've got that that good relationship with them. And I know that. Um, um, oh, the next chapter, I couldn't think of the, the name there, the next chapter, which is in the south of England. Um, I know that they, um, they're they a domestic abuse charity, but they've got lots of um, housing um, 
staff um, who will kind of work with um, housing organisations, they work with the homeless team as an example, and, and they've been kind of really upskilled around housing to, to effectively challenge, you know, housing options teams. So when somebody might go and say, this is this is the situation, this is what's going on, they can say, well, actually, um, you know, you've just told this person to ring the domestic abuse helpline that's not you know you doing your duty you need to do this this and this so i think that upskilling of domestic abuse charities around housing so they know how to effectively mm. challenge is really positive and i would say that um next chapter have done some great work and they've seen some great outcomes with the local authorities that they work with as well and i think that you know looking at this as a partnership that it's not kind of a case of them and us and quite often it feels like it can be but it, we've, we've got this issue to deal with um, and we need to deal with it effectively um, and we need to support victim survivors coming forward. Your staff need to be supported to carry out their duties. So I think if we look at it kind of as, as the whole problem or all, the whole issue that we've all got a part to play, I think. Um, and I know that the next chapter have kind of um, very much developed that partnership approach as opposed to it being a case of, you know, a them and us approach as it was Back in my day, 30 years ago, it was very much um, kind of having to really um, push against the local authority um, just to get basic, um, mm -hmm. you know, homeless advice and um, to be taken seriously. So I think I think that's a good way forward. I was just going to add as well, I think many times when I've spoken to housing options teams, um, they've been really um, frustrated and upset and want to do a really good job but I think feeling that more and more it's much more difficult to kind of to to do a good job um and that you know lots of lots of people who will go and work in homelessness will do so because they are caring people but I think that that frustration and um quite often feeling helpless helpless has come across in in many of the training sessions that I've been involved in where people just want to do their very best but finding it it's it's becoming increasingly difficult yeah yeah my I, i've done research with housing officers and, and worked with charities over the years as well and always struck me how people you know and they do you, you hear this a lot it's, it's more than just a job and they'll dedicate more than say the hours that they've got to work so that you know organizations are getting a lot from their staff to, yeah. to go above and beyond and that was kind of yeah that was something that i i'd seen as well um it related to, to this sort of theme of, of the workforce, I guess, what, one of the other things that we were, were trying to sort of explore a bit more was around what, what you think or what you've seen around or whether you can even observe housing providers and, and, and other service providers in the way that they've been trying to make their workforce more diverse. Because, yeah. you know, often it's coming up around, you know, if people are kind of finding themselves with a gatekeeper and no one looks like themselves, can they? feel comfortable presenting with whatever issues it is um you know and and so we were just yeah throwing that one out there to see if if you've seen anything like that happening yeah i, th I think i've seen kind of um as i say people who have worked in the domestic abuse world then supporting um you know housing options teams definitely i've seen that but i think there's still um in terms of representation i still think that we you know we, we do have a long way to go and um addressing domestic abuse has a experts via experience panel the eve panel and what we want to do so quite often as an example 
um, you will have somebody saying, oh, well, we'd like the survivor to speak at our, um, you know, housing options a conference or something like that. Mm. They'll offer that survivor maybe some train fare, but they won't pay them for their time and their lived experience and their expertise. So I think um, what we do at addressing domestic abuse is to say, okay, if you do, we can put you in touch with the survivor, but, you know, you will need to pay them kind of for their time and expertise as well. And I think more and more we need to be hearing much more um, from survivors of domestic abuse um, informing policy. Um, in this new research that I've started about um, survivors' experiences of presenting as homeless, I also spoke to um, refuge staff. And again, some of their um, comments were, um, you know, that, that they feel kind of some of the things that are needed, kind of a listening to survivors' experiences. Um, and I remember I was I was at a refuge probably about eight, eight or nine years ago now. And I was, it's even before I'd started doing my PhD research. And um, I was in a refuge and the home office were there doing a visit. And it was a case of, um, okay, um, got the home office here. You've got a really chance to kind of tell them what all of, all of your issues are. You know what it's like. And inside I was thinking, brilliant, excellent. They're going to kind of really tell them. And the, the floodgates really opened with women saying, actually, my house officer saved my life. They really understood. Um, or to somebody saying, well, actually, my housing officer let the perpetrator know wh where my new housing offer was. And so just like that, you know, big range of terrible practice to really, really people understanding what the survivors' needs were, were, were kind of were right across the range. So I think that much more we need to hear from survivors, we need to hear from service users. And, um, you know, we might think we've got the best policy in the world. We might think, oh, this sounds brilliant on paper. This is excellent. But actually, if that survivor, as I've said earlier, 30 years, 30 years has passed, that survivor is still feeling the same way, then that how is that the best policy in the world? It's not. Or you, you know, you you feel like you're, you know, incrementally improving things. If survivor is still not feeling represented, um, then that's that's the problem, isn't it? And so I think having more of that um um co-location of staff understanding each other but equally we just need to hear much more from survivors what what are their needs what are, what are they telling us and what can we do about that so i think having some of those really honest conversations um and i remember from my time i went for a, a largish housing provider and we'd supported a victim survivor of domestic abuse who was in her 70s and um, she didn't want to go in a refuge and she didn't want to move into any homeless accommodation. She wanted to wait till we found her a bungalow. So um, a couple of weeks passed and a bungalow was found, which we were lucky. Um, and then afterwards, um, I remember I had a conversation with her and I'd interviewed her as part of my PhD research. And I'd had a conversation afterwards and she'd said, well, you know, you had all of these... Um, rooms um, in your sheltered schemes for family members and different things like that well, I think we had about 10 across the city which largely stood empty and then she was like well why could I have not just gone there it's got CCTV all day it's staffed and um, 24 hours a day why did I have to you know you offered me a refuge or kind of a hotel um, and I was too scared to do any of those options so and um and I knew that we had these rooms, um, but I never kind of put two and two together to think, oh, that would be a really good idea that just for a couple of weeks, uh, mm -hmm. this person can stay in one of these family rooms. It's, you know, it's it's got um, a communal kitchen. Um, it's got its own bathroom. It's got its own bedroom. It's staffed 24 hours a day. It's got CCTV, um, all of these things. And I think that took, um, you know, that, that survivor to tell me. And then I was just like, 
oh, actually, yeah, why? So then yeah. I remember saying to our head of supported housing, oh, um, can we do this? And I was expecting all the reasons why we couldn't do it. Um, you know, the usual kind of health and safety types of things mm-hmm. and all sorts of, you know, regulation reasons why we couldn't do it. But actually, um, she just said, yeah, that's no problem. We can do that. I never would have thought about that in a million years. Um, so I just think that as an example of being informed by survivors, so then we were able to change our policy so that, you know, we could offer that as an option. So, yes, we could still um, try to secure a refuge accommodation, a hotel accommodation or you know other options but that was part of that suite of options so i think and i never never would have thought of that myself so i think and i think that's the way the gaps are that we're not informed by survivors enough personally yeah i think that also reflects on one of the challenges that we have with housing providers is often that they are uh, driven by process and procedure yes. rather than problem solving so yeah. mm. you know you have to in order to be told that you're doing your job properly or feel that you're doing your job properly you have to follow step one step two step yes. three step four yes. and then that there's no there's not a lot of leeway in order for um housing options mm. teams particularly yeah. Yeah. housing options workers to explore other ways or innovate or um, yeah. and I, I, so yeah. I think that's yeah. and it doesn't allow for yeah it doesn't allow for the the full spectrum of people's experiences and what's right for people and what's going to work yeah. for people so I can understand why you wouldn't have thought of that because you yeah. you know what the pro the procedure yeah. is when somebody <laughs> presents to you in that way yeah. but I think and because every local authority every organization is is different yeah and so again that sort of um sometimes there can be options available that aren't available in other no. areas or yeah. in, for certain people or, or or whatever but i think yeah there needs to be a bit more in my mind encouragement to yeah. homelessness caseworkers housing options caseworkers to be able to think about it and to not try and fit everyone into these like rigid processes and rigid procedures. Yeah. I think that's such a good point um, that we were so process driven or oh, follow the flow chart for everything in housing, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of, but if you just thought outside of the flow chart um, yeah. or outside of the policy, just thinking about the difference that you could make. And um, I think that would just be, it would be great to do a kind of a bit of an experiment on that, wouldn't it? Just to say, mm-hmm. all right, you know, let's look at what you can do um, and what would be your most ideal thing. Um, yeah. And then just seeing, seeing if you could do that, that would be just absolutely perfect as opposed to being uh, blinkered into, well, these are my options and this is all I can do. Yeah. I think um, also another point just around staff representation. Yeah. Um, I think in the other sort of protected characteristics that we've been looking at, yeah. Um, in terms of representation, that can be done a lot easier yeah. for, for example, um, w- with regards to race or religion yeah. or um, sexuality, gender identity, mm-hmm. things like that. Hiring and having staff teams represent those groups yeah. um, and those communities is easier to do because it's it's not the thing with domestic violence is that it's invisible and it's not something yeah. you would ever ask someone or ever yeah. sort yeah. of 
um, unless the the post was specific to domestic yeah. violence, yeah. Mm. Um, it's not really possible to ask that question. So it's there's there's something in yeah, as you said, in in utilizing lived experience to inform yeah. rather than um, necessarily have people be represented in the staff, but at mm. least see themselves represented represented in case studies or testimonial or yeah. um and, and and things like that um but yeah it's a it's a it's a that's a the, the framing of that question feels very different in this conversation mm -hmm. than it has done in previous conversations that we've had where it's been with you know around right. lgbtq people or it's yeah. been around race or or whatever so um yeah that's Definitely. given me pause for thought Definitely, and I think um, if you think about kind of if you were an LGBT uh, male victim of domestic abuse, um, I think as you say, just having having somebody who understands. Um, and I, I remember I was doing um, an accreditation for for one landlord once, and um, I'm reading letters from um, a man who'd experienced domestic abuse, or um, kind of an older woman, or just all sorts of people and and i think just to read that survivor's letter um yeah. or what they said as opposed to oh we can do this this and this um yeah. you know we we um you might have all the all the right policies on your website but i think for me reading um what somebody said um about the service they received is is um yeah. I, I just remember kind of one letter being absolute. It was a, a single father who'd experienced domestic abuse. Now single, left the, left the um, abusive relationship. And I just remember reading the letter, and he talked about the difference that this um, person had made to their life in terms of getting them moved. And I remember being moved to tears by the letter in terms of the impact that this this person had listened to them and understood them and treated them with dignity and respect and care. And just when that when I read that letter, I was just like, oh my God. It was just just so moving. Just yes, this person got a house. But you know, I might have followed a flow chart and went, yeah, this person's got a house. But it was it was the way that that person had been treated and understood. And they felt they could disclose. I think for me was was um the most important thing. So thinking about the current policy climate, what in your or how in your opinion could uh edi um so equality diversity and inclusion yeah. and in this case particularly around uh, yeah. perhaps the gendered aspects of housing mm -hmm. or um um policy surrounding um domestic violence mm. could be could that be improved at a legislative level yeah so i think that obviously in england we've got the um Social Housing White Paper um, 2020, which sections 136 and 137 talked about, um, you know, having a domestic abuse policy, um, working in partnership um, to make sure that you provide the, you know, the right um, support to, to tenants and customers. And I th so I think just by not having a blanket approach to um, what you think it a typical domestic abuse victim survivor is and I think having those connections to other organizations so for example we've talked about Glenn Bramley's work and understanding that actually as as a woman um you know um fleeing domestic abuse um you 
you are going to be presented with barriers. And I think it was um, Sylvia Walby's work said that um, actually the, I think it was the, the support of housing was would be much more useful in terms of, uh, as opposed to further criminalizing domestic abuse. And she talked about um, women in, in rented accommodation um, kind of experiencing much more domestic abuse, not to say that if you live in social housing, you know, um, it means you know that you are going to be a victim of domestic abuse but I think um just some of the important work that she's done um around that I think just understanding that you might have a policy but does it take account of kind of everything um that that different groups will be facing I suppose it would be one way to look at it um so I think there's there's lots to consider um around there um yeah so I think she, um, Sylvia Walby makes the point: minimum standards for access to housing uh, more is is more important than increasing uh, criminalisation of domestic abuse. And she said that repetition of domestic abuse um, and economic inequality. Um, Two thirds of domestic uh, domestic abuse victims um, lived in rented accommodation. So I think we we need to be kind of aware of that kind of that gendered element um, of that. Yeah as well, I think it is something to, to be aware of. Um, so in your policy, you can't just have a policy saying, we'll do this, this and this. I think it needs to be, well, what what, what organisations do you work with to ensure that, mm -hmm. you know, if I was um, a gay woman um, coming forward, um, how would I feel confident that you know enough about my situation, um, that you've taken the time to understand what barriers I might, what further barriers I might face um, so I think that's, I think it's that who you work with, and I, I was so glad to see in the social housing white paper that that need to kind of say um, what you're doing to work in partnership. And I know the regulator, I understand, is um, the regulator for social housing in England and Wales um, next year is is going to um, do a consultation to say, well, what what will this look like for housing providers? So for me, I think it needs to to be really clear. It's about all victims of domestic abuse and not just kind of uh, white women in their 20s and 30s with a couple of kids. And I remember when I worked um, for a large housing provider, largely we had white women in their 20s and 30s with two kids, or two or less kids who were coming forward um, around domestic abuse. And I mentioned the woman earlier who was in her 70s. Um, and I just look at that and I think her rent was always paid the garden was always spotless, no repair issues, no no problems at all. Um, so why didn't why didn't we see her as a victim survivor of domestic abuse? Um, you, you know, eventually she did tell us about that, but why why did we not in our minds think, oh, this 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 woman could be a victim of domestic abuse? And she'd been living with domestic abuse for 40 years. So I think it's very easy to get in that mindset to think what you think a typical victim survivor of domestic abuse looks like because you've had a you know maybe a, a certain group coming forward then you might miss somebody who doesn't fit that that criteria so I think we've all got so much so much more to learn haven't we really in that and by working with those um expert organizations I think that's what we need to do so there's an organization um hope um which does quite a lot of training um around um, domestic abuse and housing and um, and the the issues facing um, black and brown women. So I think, 
you know, just learning from um, Mina, who's the who's the founder of that, um, just gives you so much to think about. And uh, also do some work with the Angelou Centre, and that's a, a centre in Newcastle that um, is looking to set up kind of a, a housing element to it. Because what they're saying is that in the northeast they can't find the um, the right type of um, accommodation for women who use their services. It's for BME women in the northeast, and if they can't find the right housing um accommodation then they're saying well actually you can't provide it so we're gonna have to do it ourselves so i think mm -hmm. by working with with people like angelou and hope in in my experience um as a white woman i i, I know my experience so i think it's um about us reaching out to other organizations and um making sure that we learn as much as we can um from them it, it sort of just highlights the need for intersectionality across services it's it, yeah. it's it's not about one thing it's no. it's all connected yeah definitely we can't all know everything as we've said throughout this um this conversation but it's about having the ability and i think the humility to say um yes. maybe can you come in and do some training or can we come in and see can we come in and see your organization and see what you do um yes. so if you're describing say um you know what that service provides and you've never been there but you've read a leaflet you're not going to be able to kind of describe it to that person very well whereas i think um if you've developed that relationship with that organization i think it's going to be um so much richer your description um of the support provided is going to be so much richer and i think we, we can't just afford to sit in our offices we need to be out there um engaging with with all of the organizations in our communities um that you know that operator provides support no that's great and actually kind of links on to to sort of the final final part of the conversation which is focusing more on the, the way that research is used in policy and practice so you've talked loads yeah. about the different research that's happening and that's great and we'll um we'll make sure that we kind of link to to the reports that you've mentioned in in any notes to this conversation um one of the things that particularly interests me and this is coming from quite quite an academic background is mm -hmm. that you know we're doing a lot of work um in this space or we wanted to do more work it, it, in this space and we're wanting to make sure that we or we're wanting to try and have an impact so that we can make yeah. positive changes with the the sort of evidence that we we kind of find so just some thoughts from you really on what what we can do to make our research more accessible and this is what we're finding is that people are you know so busy on the ground kind of having to respond to things that how do they have the time to sit read reports engage but as you were saying there's lots that we can learn from from each other so yeah i guess yeah. just to finish off really your your thoughts on that um i think as an action researcher um from my point of view um i did my phd on the role of housing in a coordinated community response to domestic abuse and I interviewed uh, victim survivors, perpetrators of domestic abuse and housing professionals and I interviewed um, victim survivors in um, London and in Sunderland, um, black and white women. Um, so I feel that just going back to Glenn Bramley's um, research um, today, um, you know, seeing that all over inside housing, etc. I think the work of, um, of Hope um, foundation. I know they've they've done some um, work around housing and barriers. Um, so I think we need to work with um, people 
who we are researching. So, and I know that Scottish Women's Aid used um, women who'd experienced sexual or domestic abuse to, to kind of carry out the research, to interview housing um, professionals about kind of their attitudes and their response. So for me, I always feel it would be really good to um, work with survivors to as part of a research team so we can kind of keep it real. And so while we might be in the academic world saying, oh, blah, blah, oh, I've just read this brilliant report, blah, blah, you need a, you need a survivor to go, well, hang on a minute, um, and just kind of make it make it real. And I think I think that's sometimes kind of what's what's missing really um, in terms of you know government policy consultations, etc. Um, can quite often be with those big organisations who've got the time to complete a consultation. Um, so I think just looking at ways that we could make it easier for people to participate. You know, um, doing a focus group um, online. I did one for. Um, one organization and and the women participated because it was online and they didn't have to show their faces and they all said they would never have come to something if i'd done it in a room so i think just looking at different ways that we can engage with people um that that suits them and their needs and not kind of suits our needs um yeah. you know to come to a big room and talk about your experiences in front of loads of professionals and academics um you're not going to get kind of a really honest response, I think, and taking time to go where people are and to go into the community as opposed to being quite different, um, yeah. I think, for me, is is important. And I sense there's something about trust as well, like the work yeah. that you've been doing over the years is building that trust and relationships, and that way then you can have these conversations like we're having today, which are really helpful, yeah. productive conversations. You can start making links to others and that, that because I know that is always going to be an issue when someone's got a, you know particularly traumatic experience it's, yeah. it's it's got to be used sensitively and they've got to know that their anything they're sharing is going to be used to try yeah. and make a difference and I think as well when we are when if we have used um experiences of victim survivors their lived experience just and that does change policy or that does influence policy that it's kind of that needs to be recognized and um and then fed back to to everybody who might have participated as well and just you know that it might be that one little germ of information that can that can kind of really make the difference as well so i think um and if we are responding to consultations um given the voice of survivors as as much as possible not just our professional you enjoy experience this so Kelly what, what can we do to empower survivors in, just a reminder in our responses in our research Kelly, and just thinking Edward about Gareth, every piece of work that we do what what do we do to empower survivors we really um, want to see people's views from their experiences and perspectives the right and research? to get more people to um, learn about these issues just something, and just speak something across policy, about, practice and research. If you've got anything you'd like to add to this conversation or you have your own perspectives, we'd love to hear from you. So please get in touch with Pedro at pedro at housingoptionsscotland.org.uk. Thank you.